Session four, we're going to call Outlive Your Life. That's actually a Max Lucado quote, Outlive Your Life, Leaving a Godly Legacy. When we talk about legacy, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page here. What do we mean by the term legacy? Legacy is anything that you pass on to future generations. Anything you pass on to future generations. If you leave a financial inheritance, that's part of your legacy. If you've taught your kids how to hit a baseball or how to clean a fish, if you've taught them how to cook, if you've taught them how to study, how to handle money, all of these are part of the legacy that you are passing on to future generations. There's a Chinese proverb that says, one generation plants the trees and another gets the shade. That's a picture of legacy. If I live my life pleasing to God, it's going to provide shade. It's going to provide benefit for the next generation. So let's talk first about legacy principle. I get this from a book by Kurt Bruner. Here's the legacy principle. What we do today will directly influence a multi-generational cycle of family traits, beliefs, and actions for good or bad. So let me break it down. What I'm doing today, my words, my actions, my values, my decisions, it's going to have influence and a multi-generational cycle. I'm going to show you in just a moment. God wants us to think in the context of at least three generations. Our default is just to survive today, and I understand what that means. Jesus said, you know, that uh, we're to take life a day at a time. There's enough worry in one day. You don't need to borrow, but we're to be strategically planning ahead planning to impact multiple generations. And what we're going to do is leave family traits, beliefs, actions, good or bad. Sometimes you hear someone say something like this, I'm getting older and I'm, I'm getting worried that I'm not going to leave a legacy. Everybody leaves a legacy. Unless you lived alone on a desert island and had no interaction with anybody else, everybody leaves a legacy. The question is, am I going to leave a good legacy or a bad legacy? Let me just hit pause and make this observation. And I don't know who. Some of you have had to live much of your adult life under the shadow of a bad legacy. Again, I don't know who. Poor decisions that your parents made that continue to impact you. Some of you have had this uphill struggle because you inherited a bad legacy. So again, everybody leaves a legacy whether we leave a good or bad legacy. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Now that's a promise in Psalm 103 that if I live a life right with God and pursue right living with others, it's going to impact not just my children, generation number two, but also my children's children, my grandchildren. Now, I want you to see a pattern. I'm going to show you another verse. God wants us to think in the context continually of three generations, yours, your children, and your grandchildren. Here again, 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, uh, I am mindful of your sincere faith. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Now, you see the three-generation cycle there? 
that faith that I see in you, Timothy. Remember, Paul was a, a, a spiritual father to Timothy. They had that kind of relationship. Timothy, I see that that faith in you first was birthed in your grandmother Lois, then in your mother Eunice, and now it is in you as well. And by the way, an observation, no men are mentioned in Timothy's spiritual background. Isn't that interesting? Either they were absent or they were spiritually absent. But Paul can't give any credit to men, and obviously that would be God's ideal that the father would be a key spiritual influencer in the life of a child. So I may have a single parent in the room, and you're wondering, can I do this successfully? And the answer is, by the grace of God, yes, you can. Someone has described it like this. What we want to cultivate is a sticky faith that it sticks to our children, it sticks to our grandchildren as well, a, a sticky faith. Leaving a godly legacy, I've got four things for you this morning, four practical points of application. You're going to hear echoes of things that Brent and Maggie have taught, things that I've said earlier over the course of the week. Again, all of these things are connected together. Number one, I'm to live a life of integrity. I'm to live a life of integrity. Now, the promise here is Proverbs 27. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Well, let's be clear. What, what do we mean by integrity? Here are specific people in Scripture who were described as people of integrity. Noah, Abraham, Jacob, David, Job are all described as people of integrity. Now, you are Bible students. Did some of those men that I described make some pretty serious mistakes in their lives? Absolutely. But people of integrity, it's not that they don't make mistakes, that they don't make bad choices. It's that even when they do, they handle that scripturally. They're quick to repent. They're quick to take responsibility. They're quick to seek forgiveness or give forgiveness where it is warranted. You have integrity when you complete a job even when no one else is looking. You have integrity if you are a person of your word, you keep your word. You have integrity if you keep your promises. Let me give you a little homework assignment that was, uh, this is a challenge that I got years and years ago. Go home and ask your child this question. Have I ever made a promise to you that I broke? That I make a promise to you that I broke. Now, you meant it when you said we're going to go fishing next weekend, and then something happened, you got busy, you forgot. You meant it when you said we're going to do Disney this summer, and then the budget took a hit, and you forgot. They did not. You're a person of integrity when you maintain financial accountability, personal reliability, and private purity. You are a person of integrity. A Baptist minister was raising two sons in Missouri. One day, one of the boys showed up with a stray dog. Dad, can we keep it? This was, uh, again, back in the late 1800s. Uh, the pastor, their father, said, we'll keep it unless someone else comes to claim it, and then we have to give it up. Well, Months went by, no one else showed up. That dog became a member of the family. Those boys loved that dog so much. 
One day they were out in the front of the parsonage playing with the dog, and a man came by in a buggy, and he said, Hey, boys, where did you get that dog? And they kind of looked at each other, and one ran into the house to get their father. And he came back, and he said, Can I help you? He said, Well, you know, that dog looks very familiar. I had a dog just like that ran away a couple months ago. He looked down into the faces of his boys, knew how much they had become attached to that dog, and he said, Sir, we've had this dog since... He was a pup. Fellow said, okay, and he drove off. Reflecting on that moment, he said, you know, that day we gained a dog, and I lost two boys. And by the way, you name, uh, those boys uh, have, a, have a name, Frank and Jesse. What? James. That's exactly right. Frank and Jesse James. All right, point number two. I want to live a, leave a, a godly legacy. Provide a secure home environment by honoring your marriage vows. Provide a secure home environment by honoring your marriage vows. Why have we spent so much time this week on marriage and the family? Brent and Maggie have done a great job of uh, providing a biblical perspective on the dynamics of marriage. We've used more illustrations this morning, more principles. Why? Because the marriage relationship is the most important relationship in the home. Now, a couple of things. Number one, there is in the home a trickle-down effect. And again, I know we've got single parents in the room, and, and uh, not trying to exclude you, but for those who are married, this is important. There's this trickle-down effect. If there is love, if there is respect, if there is good communication, if there is kindness, if these are the things that are most consistently demonstrated in a husband and wife relationship, that's what trickle down, trickles down to, to the children. But if there's constant competition and criticism and selfishness, that's what trickles down to the children. The marriage relationship sets the tone for the home. Remember also Children are transients. <laughs> what do you mean? They're not going to be there forever. You're going to have a window of opportunity. And here's where I sound like your dad. That window of opportunity goes by so very fast. Here on the backside, I'm telling you, it goes so very fast. That window of opportunity, of influence, and then they move on, hopefully. <laughs> All right? Hopefully they're going to move on and, again, be that kind of person that you want to hang with. A passage of scripture I know that you've heard quoted many times, but sadly often out of context. Let me adjust a little tablecloth there. It's hiding some of my verse. There we go. The Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you've been unfaithful to her. Though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife, and body and spirit you are his? Why does he want godly, uh, what does he want? Godly children from your union. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, let me back up, number one, and say this is not the only thing that God says in regards to divorce in Scripture. There are situations, that's my personal conviction, in which uh, divorce is an option that God has given to us. It should be rare, it should be extreme, but there are certainly those situations. 
Also, when God says, I hate divorce, he's not saying I hate divorced people. Interesting, though, why just I hate divorce? Look at the context. Again, the verse before, what does he want? Godly children from your union. God knows better than all of us, though we're catching up. A child never wins in a divorce situation. You can look at all of the statistics. And so don't kid yourself when you say, well, I'm doing this for the kids. Unless there's some kind of physical sexual abuse going on, and that would certainly be one of those situations that would warrant at least separation. But no child is going to benefit long-term from divorce. It's going to affect them emotionally. It's going to affect them academically. It's going to affect them relationally. Some of you in the room, again, still struggle, still bear scars because you grew up in a home where divorce had a significant impact on your life. There's an old book out there, probably out of print, but you can find it, Letters to Philip. And it's literally just a father writing letters to his son. The author is Charles Shedd. And listen to one excerpt. A father's first responsibility to his child is to love his wife. The most favored children in the world are those whose parents love each other. Why again such emphasis on marriage? Because the best thing you can do for your children is to allow the Lord to cultivate a healthy, loving, committed relationship. That's the best thing you can do for your children. That's one of the best legacies that you can leave them is the legacy of what two people who love Jesus and love each other and are committed with those two people look like. Number three, with God's help, break the sin cycles in your family background. Break the sin cycles in your family background. A verse I know familiar to many, Exodus 20 you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, that is the second commandment. The first one, you shall love the Lord your God. Or uh, I'm sorry, you shall have no other gods before me. That's commandment number one. Commandment number two deals with idolatry. You may remember a year ago, I took a whole night in our thirst conference to talk again about what modern idolatry looks like. So we have a clear prohibition against idolatry, and idolatry is anyone or anything that I love equally or more than I love God. Now, let me take you through the rest of the passage. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love and uh, to showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, first let me explain to you what this is not saying. This is not saying that children are punished for their parents' sins. That's not, uh, not what it's saying. Because if that was the case, it would contradict Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. So whatever the passage is saying, we know it's not teaching children are punished directly by God for their parents' sin. What is it saying then? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. It is 
an observation that because of the nature of sin, now hear me, sin is contagious. Sin is contagious. When you and I willfully disobey God, it doesn't just affect us, it affects those folks that are in the sphere of our lives as well. Sin, sin is contagious. So here's the, the, there is a propensity, there is a tendency for sin to be passed on to other generations. He actually says the third and the fourth. And by the way, that is the mercy of God. See, he says, my he goes on to say, my righteousness, I'll pass on to a thousand generations. And what God is saying here is I'm going to contain it to the third and fourth generations. So there is this propensity. Now, you've seen this. Why is it that alcoholics, children, are often alcoholics? I mean, if you would think there was a person raised in the home of an alcoholic, saw the abuse saw all the pain that it brings, the last thing that child would want to do is himself or herself abuse alcohol. And yet there is a tendency that children of alcoholics become alcoholics. Often those who have been abused themselves become abusers of others. You say, that doesn't make sense. They've experienced incredible pain and shame and why would they ever want someone else to experience that? Because sin doesn't play fair. That's the way sin works. Remember, I shared with you one night during the conference, imitation breeds, excuse me, fixation breeds imitation. Fixation breeds imitation. What we fixate on, good or bad, we will tend to imitate. Now, let me just give you an example of this using good old father Abraham. Most of us know the story of Abraham, father of faith, tremendous man of God. Again, one of those that I referred to as a man of integrity. Well, Abraham left a lot of good legacy, but he also left a poor legacy, a legacy of dishonesty. In Genesis 12 and then later in Genesis 20, Abraham interacts with two world leaders, Pharaoh in Egypt, Abimelech probably in Philistia. In both of those situations, before Abraham took his wife Sarah into Egypt or into Philistia, remember he gave her some poor advice. He said, you know, you are such a good-looking woman. I'm afraid when I get into these other countries that the rulers are going to take you for their harem. So and to avoid me getting killed, just tell them you're my sister. Remember the story? Just tell them you're my sister. Well, he did that in Egypt, and a pharaoh took her, and God intervened. He did the same thing in Abimelech, uh, with Philistia, and Abimelech took her, and God intervened. And each time, God protected Sarah from Abraham's poor counsel. But I want you to see here, he did it. you'd think he would have learned the first time, but he did it again. He struggles with dishonesty. All right, Isaac, the child of promise. Genesis 26. Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, again go into the land of the king of Abimelech. And what advice do you think Isaac gives to his wife? When we get there, tell him you're my sister. Interesting, where did he get that from? <laughs> He'd heard the stories, right? And again, God intervened and protected Rebekah in that situation. All right, generation number three. Isaac has two sons, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau. Boys, twins, Esau's born first, first, 
Jacob comes out, the scripture says, literally holding on to the heel of Esau, almost as if to say, I wanted to be the firstborn, trying to pull him back. So Jacob is given the name supplanter or one who takes the place of another. Jacob has a real issue with deceit. He deceives his brother Esau, catches him in a moment of weakness, and deceives him into giving Jacob his birthright as the eldest son. He later deceives his father Isaac and takes the blessing that should have been again reserved for the firstborn son. All right, Jacob has 12 boys. Now watch, the deceiver is going to become the deceit. Jacob had a very poor parenting practice, favoritism, right? Favoritism. And there was lots of reasons that Joseph was his favorite, but it, it created a lot of jealousy among the other sons. Well, on an occasion, 10 of those boys catch Joseph alone. Someone to kill him. Others intervene and said, no, let's just sell him into slavery. You know the story. Joseph ends up in uh, slavery in Egypt. They come back, they tell the old man, he's died. Here's that beautiful coat you gave him covered with an animal's blood, but they say it was his blood. So look what we've got. Generation after generation, four generations of deception. And then we pick it up with Joseph. He's been sold into slavery into Egypt. If any man had a reason to be resentful and bitter, it was Joseph, but he did not succumb to those destructive emotions. So on one occasion, I'm paraphrasing, uh, his master Potiphar, his master's wife, gets the hots for Joseph, all right? You remember the story. She tries to seduce him. And Joseph, in his haste to run from the room, to maintain his integrity, even leaves his robe and she frames him unjustly. Now watch. How easy it would have been for Joseph to say, who's going to know? I mean, here I am out in Egypt. Who's going to know? Who's going to care? Abraham lies. Isaac lies. Jacob lies. His brothers lie. But Joseph said, I'm not going to be defined by the sins of my parents. And he breaks the cycle. He breaks the cycle. Again, some of you have been struggling because sins that were prominent in parents and grandparents, you see prominent in your life as well. And you may be assuming it's going to always be this way. And I say to you, if any man is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. All things are passed away. All things become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17. We were leading a conference in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. During the testimony service, young woman named Lindsay stood, and here's what she shared. She said, most of you know that my father and grandfather have a terrible reputation in this community as liars and cheats. She said, I had always assumed that because that's the way our family was, that's the way I would be. And she said, I learned from this teaching that I don't have to be defined by the sins of my parents or grandparents. And she said, in Jesus' name, I'm asking God to break that cycle of sin in our family. So by you recognizing that, by you publicly repenting, helping your children see, again, that they don't have to be the way you are. Number four, 
Last point. Pray, pray regularly for your children and your grandchildren. We talked about prayer. I told you we'd come back to, to prayer here. Pray regularly for your children and grandchildren. Our executive director of our ministry has a little saying. He says, I want my prayers to outlive me. By that he means I'm praying for things now and the lives of my grandchildren that I may never live to see but that I believe God is going to bless and honor because I prayed in agreement with the will of God. Follow the example of Job, another of those men of integrity. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, his children, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular custom. Every day, again, he was acting under the uh, dynamics of the old covenant as uh, both a priest and as a prophet and and he was carrying out offering but there's this picture of you and i making intercession praying for our children praying for our grandchildren if you're not doing this right now you need to be praying for your children's spouses and your grandchildren's spouses my wife and i prayed 20 plus years before our first child married. In other words, we'd been praying for that spouse for 20 plus years. We're praying now for the spouses of our two granddaughters, praying again that whether we live to see who they choose or not, that they're going to hear from God, that God's going to guide them and protect them in that process. We're praying for our granddaughter's salvation, praying that they're going to come to conviction of sin and they're going to give their life to Jesus. You all continue to have tremendous influence through prayer. Again, back to the power of a husband and wife praying together, Matthew 18, 19, and 20. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven, where two or three have gathered together in my name. I'm there in their midst. As children age, of course, we have less influence. As our grandchildren age, we have less influence as far as they become older, they're not as open to counsel, but our prayer influence never diminishes. You continue to have influence praying together. I'm telling you, a husband and a wife, a mom and a dad committed together, praying the will of God for their children. Now grandparents praying the will of God for their grandchildren. There's just tremendous power that's demonstrated by praying together.